Hey, this is Kaz, and you are listening to Two Broke Watch Knobs, the only watch podcast that knows crime is a protest against the abnormality of the social organization and nothing more. You have made it all the way to episode 198. How the fuck is everyone doing? No, you are not wrong. I am alone. I am flying solo, soulless this week without my better half and broke watch snobbery, Michael. But you know what that means? We have a few traditions here. Um, at Two Broke Watch Knobs. The fine, fine authorology house of Two Broke Watch Knobs. We have a few traditions, and uh, one of them is that anytime Michael is not able to join me on the show, and you fine folk at home are stuck with me, we're going to talk about vintage Soviet watches. And today is no exception to that fucking tradition. This week for episode 198, we are going to continue Kaz's solo saga of talking about Sylvia watches anytime that he can um, with another installation of just kind of talking about the groundwork and what really helped Soviet watches become Soviet watches. So if you are unfamiliar or if this is your first episode, first of all, if this is your first episode, welcome, uh, and you're not too sure what I'm talking about, my particular collecting niche within orology is Soviet watches. So those are in particular watches produced between between 1917 and approximately 1991 slash 1992. So the, the lifespan of the Soviet Union, it's like, oh God, math, 70 years, 75 years. Let's do this. Let's do this right now together, everyone. Let's let's do calculator. 1991 minus 1917. It's about 74, 75. Okay, I wasn't, I wasn't that far off. So, but in that particular span of time, um, the orological industrialization in the Soviet Union was expansive. They went from producing a very small amount of honestly like pocket watches that really that weren't necessarily function focused to after 1917 starting around 1926 1929 when they really started making a concerted effort very quickly they started making a ton of a ton of watches so um in the whole series of us discussing the uh, beginning of Soviet watches, first of all, this is something that no other fucking watch podcast is going to talk about. I don't... If someone knows of another watch podcast <laughs> that talks about Soviet watches to the extent that Michael and I really I do on you know this show, definitely let me know what's up because we could be watch friends. Who doesn't need more watch friends? Excuse me one second. Drinking coffee. Drinking coffee out of my Tupo Watch Snobs mug. We have a Teespring store. I keep forgetting to talk about it. <laughs> it's not a proper watch podcast. If you want a two-book watch knobs mug, check out our Teespring store. There's a link on the website or something. Um, but Soviet watches, there are two main initial catalysts that helped Soviet watches be what they were during their really quick blaze of glory. I'm going to call it a quick blaze of glory. Uh, the first is the 1929 um, Duberhampton deal in Canton, Ohio, which helped the Soviets get the first uh, orological machinery they ever had in the Soviet Union, in Russia at the time. Before the 1917 Red Revolution, um, Russian orology was really focused to Swiss manufacturers who were dodging shipping taxes by sending the parts of pocket watches disassembled into Russia, into their own workshops, which they established, that would then just put the watches together and sell them to um, aristocrats. Like, people, regular folk weren't buying these, um, you know, watches. And so they didn't have an industrialized infrastructure to, you know, create watches for, for everyone. So not just nobility, you know, but also, like, 
people who worked in the factory or someone whose job it was to make sure they were always on time. I'm not entirely sure. I'm blanking on jobs right now. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other socioeconomic and just different things related to that, which we'll get into later. But it wasn't until 1929, the first deal with Duber Hamden in Canton, Ohio, that helped bring um, you know machinery into um, then the Soviet Union, but you know you know widely Russia. Uh, that was the first the first part, and we've actually talked a lot about that on this show, the Duber Hampton deal uh, in Canton, Ohio. There was actually a second deal in approximately 1935 that a lot of folks don't talk about too much, which I think has had more impact um, on Soviet urology than the uh, more long-lasting impacts than the deal with Duber Hampton. 1935, the Soviets signed a deal with LIP, the French watch manufacturer LIP, to share technology, um, patents, designs over, you know, a several-year period. And that is what you and I (laughs) are going to be talking about on episode 198 of the Two Book Watch Snobs. Um, I don't really know what the title is episode or whatever, but... I'm probably going to say something like episode 198, um, you know, I don't know, lip watches in the Soviet Union or something like that. But basically, that's the idea that we're going to be talking about today. The influence that lip watches had on Soviet Union watches, specifically across two movements, one of which is directly related to what I'm wearing now. What I wanted to do is treat my wrist check today as kind of like a oh, this is what I'm wearing for this episode, and here's the entire lineage of this movement, and that's what I'm going to do now. So let's transition to another two-book wash knobs um, tradition, I guess, for the 198th time. (laughs) You people are going to hear a wrist check, audio wrist check. For today's episode, I am wearing the TBWS famous... I guess, feels weird saying that, but whatever. Uh, Raketa Big Zero. The, the movement in the Raketa Big Zero, which is the Raketa 2609, can directly trace its technological lineage to this French uh, lip watch manufacturer deal. LIP uh, is the name of the French watch brand. They're still around, technically. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the movement in my Raketa 2609 can directly be traced back to the model R2K slash K2K, uh, as it came to be known in Russia. Um, and then sometimes 2602, we'll get to that in a moment later on as well. But what I'm wearing on my wrist right now can be traced directly back to that deal, which began in 1935. Technologically, I should clarify. Um, this watch was made in the 80s, but you know the tech that made the guts in this piece possible were a result of that deal. So um, the Raketa Big Zero is an interesting watch in that uh, we get a lot of people asking about this watch. I'm taking it off my wrist right now, which sounds like, which is why it sounds like I'm fidgeting. The Raketa Big Zero is a lot of fun. It's a simple three-hand movement. It's very specific in regards to how it looks it has this big dial it's very black and white it's got these wedge markers but the arabic numerals are these very large numbers and at 12 o'clock specifically it's a very large zero so there's not like a you know an arabic number 12 one and a two it's just a giant zero hence the name the 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 nickname you know raketa raketa big zero these things have become have become harder and harder to find uh, as of late i bought mine Oh, 2016, 2015 for $40. Um, and I was lucky to find it. I, I had to do, I had to do a lot of digging back then, uh, on, um, on eBay SERPs and everything like that to figure it out and to find, 
you know, something that looked right. But these things are so frankened now. The prices have gone up crazily. Uh, every week we get people asking us if the big zero they found on eBay or Etsy is real. Um, also, yeah, you didn't you didn't mishear me. One of the more interesting places to find Soviet watches, if you're looking for places that people don't go to, check out Etsy. Um, I think Soviet watch uh, like resellers, um, mainly in like former Soviet bloc countries, uh, which is where you should buy your Soviet watches from. Don't buy them from um, USA sellers. The people who are selling these watches, I think they go to Etsy because I think the fees are cheaper than eBay. Um, but I'm 100% sure they're violating like an Etsy rule because Etsy says you can only sell things that are that like, you make by hand unless they're arguing that they made these watches by hand, which they didn't. But either way, if you're looking for a cool place to uh, hunt down some Soviet watches that's not eBay, um, check out Etsy, etsy.com, E-T-S-Y.com. Most folks in the U.S. are familiar with it. I have no idea if Etsy is a thing outside the U.S. Also, I'm going to apologize now since I'm by myself. You guys are going to hear me talk to myself a lot. I'm just going to be talking the entire time. One second, got to drink some coffee here. Oh, man. Tastes, tastes sweeter because it's in the TUEWS, Two Book Watch Stops coffee mug. But yeah, so we're kind of big zero on my wrist. Uh, has the 2609 caliber in it. This is actually a movement that Raketa is continuing to iterate on. Um, huge props, actually. A uh, user sent me... I guess Raketa was in the New York Times. They're really trying to... They're really trying to get some press behind what they're doing over there, which is cool. The only problem with modern Raketa is that um, they're just too expensive. Like, if you want something that's still iterating on this Raketa 2.6XX caliber, um, which is what I would want as as a Soviet watch, you know, and movement, Soviet watch movement manufacturer, like geek slash lover, um, it's like entry level a thousand bucks. Um, that's tough. That's in that price range for modern Raketas, so post-Soviet Union Raketas. That's like Oris territory, like entry-level Oris territory for some stuff. So that's a tough, tough price to ask for. Uh, I have never handled a modern Raketa. That's why whenever I talk to people at Soviet watches, they're like, oh, that's cool. You like Russian watches. Like, no, no. I don't know a goddamn thing about Russian watches. <laughs> I could talk to you about Soviet watches, though. Um, so I cannot speak to the quality of modern Raketa. What I will say is I know they're in the same factory. Um, same machinery in a lot of the cases. You know, it's basically a Soviet watch brand that kind of just never stopped. There was probably some down period, some downtime post-USSR in the 90s or so. But otherwise, they just kind of have kept doing it, so... Maybe one day I'll try to get my hands on the modern Raketa, but for now, I'm very happy to have my Raketa Big Zero on the wrist. <sighs> okay, here, let's do this. Ba -ba -ba, I had to write down my notes. Let's see here. Did the intro. Hello, everyone. We did my wrist check. Let's talk about Sylvia watches. Fuck all this. Fuck all this other shit. We're just gonna talk about Soviet Watch. I wrote down a bunch of other stuff to talk about, but none of it matters. It's all it's all meaningless. All that matters is me talking to people about Soviet watches. Ha! There it is. Soviet watches, in terms of a history, period of time, we're talking, like I said before, 1917 to 1991 slash 1992. It's pretty important to understand what Russia looked like before 1917. What a lot of folks don't really 
comprehend or I guess appreciate is the fact that Russia did not have um, a renaissance. There was no renaissance period for Russia. So the rise of, you know, mercantilism and the potential build, like, like framework for a future middle class was occurring everywhere else in Europe except uh, Russia. Russia was anomalous in that um, it's had a pretty sordid history of just seeking out random little wars and skirmishes, and it's called, always kind of been cut off from everything else. Its court culture, like most European-ish cultures, was heavily influ- influenced by the French, and that court culture with French influence then influenced the um, aristocratic, aristocratic and nobility class, and this basically coupled with the fact that there wasn't a renaissance, which I mentioned before was the was the beginning framework for the middle class, basically just meant that you had a very strong class and wealth divide in Russia pre-Soviet Union, pre-1917. Um, up until the 1800s, there were still serfs. Serfs, like serfdom was still a thing in the 1800s in, in, um, in Russia. So like... If you're not familiar with the concept of serfdom, it's basically slavery, but like not really. So a landowner owns land. They have no idea what to do with it. Serfs are basically beholden then to the landowner to work the land. And in return, they get, you know, some of what they get to, I guess, reap, crop, grow. I'm not, I'm not a farmer. Um, but the main crux of that is they couldn't, they couldn't own property. Um, I don't think they could have money. They couldn't do, you know, that stuff. So... Uh, and this was occurring in the 1800s. And this was occurring in the 1800s, a period of time where other countries um, post-Renaissance were industrializing heavily, 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 heavily industrializing. Russia did not industrialize. So this is two really big things that Russia has missed out on pre-1917, which precipitated some of the events I'm going to talk about now. No Renaissance, which means no rise of mercantilism and the potential framework for the middle class, and no industrialization, which meant... Uh, Russia was not able to care for and feed its population uh, to the same extent that other countries were able to, which made Russia beholden on relying on other countries. They, Russia was not able to be self-sustaining, which is evidenced by the fact that there were many famines, lots of people died, and all this was occurring while basically this French court culture influenced middle class and nobility sector of folks were partying it up, acting like nothing was really wrong while at the same time people were actually like literally starving in the streets pre-1917 you know muy muy mal super super bad hold on one second ah all of this precipitated the rise of different political thoughts different ways of thinking about things different ways of thinking about the role government should play in everyday people's society, which has inevitably ended up just kind of spiraling into the um, adoption of uh, Marxism and communism and everything like that and all that stuff. Uh, and just to clarify, anytime I talk about Soviet watches, I'm going to talk about communism and Marxism a lot because it's just ingrained, as we're going to talk about, in product culture. But that is in no way an endorsement of communism or, or Marxism. It clearly doesn't work. It looks great on paper. Anything you plan on paper is going to be awesome. But, like, it's just humans are too flawed for anything like communism to work. So, I don't think it's communism's fault. I think it's humans' fault. 
Hold on, my phone's ringing. The fuck is calling me right now? <sighs> I'm in the U.S. and we're in the middle of a, an election right now, and a whole bunch of elections people just you just get calls all the time. I threw my phone on my couch here, on my office couch. What was I talking about? Communism. Yeah, that's that's my side. Just in case I get angry emails. Communism is not good. Communism is never going to work. But it's not communism's fault. It's humans' fault. Humans are inherently flawed. Okay, sorry. Deal with it. The inherent flaw in humanity is the reason most things won't work. Everything looks great on paper. <sighs> One second. Oh my god. Alright. 1917 Red Revolution occurs. If you ever saw that animated movie Anastasia, um, that's basically what we're talking about. That's the 1917 Red Revolution with the Romanovs pulled out of the house, thrown in jail, eventually they're all killed, blah blah blah. Um, 1917 Revolution, Red Revolution, October Revolution, whatever the fuck you want to call it, Bolshevik Revolution was basically that. The forcible, physical uprising of the oppressed lower class, quote-unquote, people against the, quote, bourgeois, bourgeoisie, uh, aristocratic nobility um, within Russia at the time that we're, that we're keeping those people down uh, to their own, to the, you know, the individual, uh, like, regular lower-class people's detriment, keeping them down to their detriment. Um... The 17th Revolution happens, very bloody, blah, 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 all that stuff. Built on the idea of, okay, we've all taken to the streets. We've, 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 we've physically, physically removed, not like emotionally or, you know, legislatively. We have physically removed <laughs> our government oppressors. Let's do this Marxism thing. Let's do this communist thing. Let's figure out how we can make Russia a self-sustaining which is something they missed out on in congruence with the loss of those two events i mentioned earlier that happened across europe the renaissance and industrialization and let's ensure the second part of communism that everyone has what they need no one goes hungry even though people totally went hungry um, you have all the tools you need you have exactly what you need to do your job and to be happy and Russia's going to make all that stuff. Huh, okay. 1917. So what does that really mean for watches? Like I mentioned before, watches in, in Russia at the time weren't really a thing. It was just these small little Swiss, um, you know, operations that were dodging tax laws and everything like that by sending in disassembled watches and then assembling them in Russia. Uh, and a lot of those brands are actually still around. Very famously, one, um, Moser. Moser & Co. had a... Uh, was well known in St. Petersburg for, you know, doing that, like supplying these really fancy wristwatches and shit like that for uh, mainly as gifts to the um, Russian aristocratic and, uh, and noble class and everything like that. Uh, Tissot also is in there. I believe Omega is in there as well. So a lot of these legacy Swiss brands. Uh, yeah, when the 1917 revolution happened, yeah, they got the fuck out. Um, some, some left uh, a little before the revolution, um, and then I'm sure some were just forced to leave, which is fine. So when all those watch places left, they basically left a lot of the materials they were using and some of the workshops they were using and everything like that. Um, so for about 10 years or so, the Russians just continued to use the materials, or I should correct myself... The Soviets just continued to use the materials that some of these Swiss watch shops left when they just fled the fucking country. 
And that was cool. That was, that lasted for about 10 years. But around 1926, it became pretty apparent that, hey, we're, we're going to run out of stuff. We need to, with the same fervor that we're trying to industrialize our agricultural practices and all this other stuff, we need to industrialize our precise instrument manufacturing and our orological you know, manufacturing um, with an initial focus really on uh, like a military, like a military aspect. That was always kind of the initial thing. Like, cause these are the folks that need like precision time telling instruments at the time. Um, you know, the lip thing, which I'll talk about the lip French wash market thing, which I'll talk about in a minute, changed a lot of that. So 1926, that uh, became apparent. 1929, they struck a deal with Duberhampton, the first deal, Canton, Ohio. They went over there. Duberhampton was going out of business uh, they'd opened themselves up for acquisition. No one else in Russia, no one else in Europe would sell orological equipment or technology to the Soviets. That's a huge, huge factor here. When the Soviets in 1926 realized they needed to uh, industrialize their orological practices, the best way that they could do it, which is a trope that you'll see in Soviet orology, is to either steal technology or buy technology. Um, they don't have an orological culture to build off of. It's not like they've been, they have like a neurological, you know, orology that's been going back to like the 1800s and like, like, no, it's 1917. We have nothing. You know, we have all these foreigners, these Swiss foreigners that were here doing stuff. And so when it came time to industrialize, um, the Soviets looked to their European, um, allies uh, and no one wanted to help them. No one wanted to help the Soviets for, I mean, A, obvious reasons, because of them, you know, just governmental dis- disagreements, which is fine. Uh, but the main one is also, why would you help someone become a competitor? The Soviets are here trying to create their own orological industry. You know, the Europeans are not going to help them. Um, and the only people that were, I guess, in a place or willing to do it at the time, in 1929, was Duberhampton Pocket Watches in Canton, Ohio. Soviets went... Uh, they made an agreement, they bought the stuff, 1930-1931, the first Moscow watch factory opened, blah blah blah. I won't go too much into that, I've done that in previous episodes, I'll find all those links and put them in the show notes. Um, that, that Duberhampton um, deal with the watch factory in Canton, Ohio, was huge. That was the first taste of orological industrialization the Soviets uh, ever got. Um... But it became pretty apparent that the technology they purchased from Duberhampton wasn't as technologically competitive as it should be. To be perfectly clear, they bought pocket watch movements. Um, really big pocket watch movements. Uh, and they tried to work with them the best they can and everything like that. And they were trying to be converted to a combination of pocket watches and wristwatches, but the tech just wasn't old. The reason Duberhampton closed is because its pocket watch manufacturing practices weren't competitive with other um, orological te- te- technological advances that were occurring in the U.S. and everywhere else in the world at the time because people just weren't, you know, interested in buying that, which is the reason why Duberhampton closed in the first place. So inevitably, that technology gap was going to catch up with the Soviets as well, and it did become apparent to them pretty quick to, uh, I, I guess, technically around 1935, 1934, they then began to... So this is only, I don't know, five years after the Duberhampton uh, deal. Um, 
after that, 1934, 1935-ish, they started seeking out additional orological partners that they could buy technology from, buy patents from, buy training from. Training's the big thing also. Remember, the Soviets, and I keep hammering this home because I don't think people understand how fucking devastating this, the Soviets were not industrialized. They were barely agricultural in the 1800s. They couldn't feed themselves. What the fuck are they supposed to do if they buy a bunch of technology and all these machines? They don't know how to use that shit. They're not skilled. They weren't skilled craftsmen. Not to their own uh, detriment, just because of how their government set them up and how their government cared about them or didn't really care about them. So a big aspect of any technological acquisition the Soviets made was also the training factor. When they made the deal with Duberhampton in Canton, Ohio, they signed an agreement for, I think, like 20 or 21 technicians from the Duberhampton, Canton, Ohio factory to come to Moscow for like a year or two to train the Moscovites on how to use this equipment, how to assemble movements, how to finish movements, what this does, what this does, XYZ. Super funny tidbit. Uh, the Soviets did not speak English, and the Ohioans uh, didn't speak Russian. However, they both spoke, they both spoke German. <laughs> I guess, I've never been to Canton, Ohio. Apparently German at the time, there were a lot of German immigrants in Ohio at the time, and so most um, Ohioans who came over to Moscow for the Duberhampton-Canton Ohio, uh, Canton deal, Duberhampton deal, they knew German, and the Russians obviously, you know, being, um, having close ties with, uh, with Germany, some of them knew German, and that's how they were able to communicate, which to me is just fucking hilarious. I don't know why. I find that so funny. It's just, it's just interesting. So the, the idea of getting training is also, you know, a huge factor. So, again, talking about 1934-1935, the Soviets realized the Duberhampton technology is dated. We need something more technologically competitive. They put out a call again, and no one answers it. No European nation or I guess even American watch manufacturer, other than the previous deal with Duberhampton, no one wants to help the Soviets. The Soviets have money, but it's a competitive thing. We don't want to help our competitors. Until 1935, uh, French watch manufacturer Lip agrees and enters into a deal with the Soviets to share patents, uh, technology, so machines, and training. It begs the question as to why Lip agreed to do it. Uh, the simple answer is because Lip was fucking broke. Lip had expanded too quickly inside, I think technically outside of France, to the point where they were financially under very difficult hardships at the time, to the point where they had to make the business choice, okay, we can either continue to ignore the Soviets because we don't want to help their industry and then we'll just fucking fail anyway because we have no money or we can take a shot, help the Soviets and keep our company alive with their money and they chose the second option. They chose to keep, French Lip chose to keep their brand alive by um, by helping the, uh, you know, the Soviets. So they exported the technology, they exported the parts and they um, also exported the training the question became became at the time of okay this is cool where where do we do this we can't do it in moscow you know because the first moscow watch factory is there at the time i'm well, probably well let me double check i'm pretty sure 
excuse me, the second the second Moscow Watch Factory is there as well. Second Moscow Watch Factory later became known as Slava. Yeah, I would say the building blocks for the second Moscow Watch Factory are there, you know, as well. And approximately, this is 1935. I'm, ta- I'm, ta- I'm talking about 1935, 1936 now, approximately. So the choice was made to choose uh, a, a town, I guess it's a town, called Pensa, or Penza, P-E-N-Z-A, southeast of Moscow, a um, few hundred miles, I think. I'm not super up on Russian geography. Sorry, guys. <laughs> they chose the town of Pensa. 1936 to start sending the technology to sending the um you know uh, machinery to the patents all this stuff pensa 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 my thinking and my reasoning is that it's because in pensa at the time there was a company there called ziff or ziff or zif i'm not entirely sure how you say it anglicized it's z-i-f and they were making bikes <laughs> They were, they were making watches or whatever. They were making bikes. Um, they made munitions and things like that as well during like the different wars and stuff like that. You know, those wars. You've heard about the wars. Uh, <laughs> but um, Ziff Bike Manufacturer was there, and they had the ability to pivot as needed, as most Soviet watch factories had to you know, during some wars that occurred. <clears throat> See one second here. So my my suspicion is that Pensa was chosen because uh, Ziff was there, and I'm sure it was probably other like uh, supply lines and trade routes and things like that were easier to accommodate uh, as well. Um, with the with the Lip deal, French Lip uh, French watch manufacturer Lip L I P, a lot of different movements came into the Soviet Union. The Next part of our discussions are going to focus on movements now. Um, the movements that I want to focus on are two in particular. The first I'll talk about is the LIP T18, T-18, and the one which we'll talk about later is the French LIP R26. But let's focus on the T18, the French LIP T18. The production of the T18 started in about 1938 or so. It took them a little while to get set up, and they had to do all these little things like that. But on a wide scale process um the t18 or t dash well i'll just oh, fuck i'll just say t18 i don't give a shit uh the t18 manufacturing began in approximately 1938 in the ziff uh bike factory i don't know why i find that so funny that's also a very soviet thing we make bikes we make watches we make sandwiches we make bombs it's fine you know what i mean that wasn't a very good accent i apologize i'm not very good with accents but damn it that didn't stop me from doing them anyway so 1938, sorry, the T18 movement um, in Russia. There's a few names for it. So, okay, this early in Soviet horology, the Soviets didn't name their movements. Um, not like you know, oh, Eta two, or the Eta 2824, or the Miyota 9015, or even later in Soviet horology, you would say the Raketa 2609, which I talked about at the beginning of the show, which we'll get to later. Movements weren't really named, but there is general tenuous con- uh, 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 agreements, you know, in Soviet horology now, as we look back and study it, that the Soviets probably kind of refer to the Lip T18 as the Russian one eight zero two eighteen zero two. The number eighteen, um, in particular, refers to the width of the movement. 
So I don't know if this is the same for other European urology, but in in in, in uh, Soviet urology, the first number, the first two numbers of a movement name uh, designate the width of the movement. So the Rakita 2609 is 26 millimeters wide in diameter. The Vostok 2209 is 22 millimeters in diameter. Uh, my Slava 2428 is 24 millimeters. So in the case in the case of the of the 1802, the Russian 1802, this uh, you know 18 millimeters wide, it's actually a pretty cool looking watch. I need to pull up a picture here so I can talk about it in real time as I talk to you kind folk at home. The French Lip T18 watch, the the movement shape, it's um it's very old school. It's kind of Art Deco-ish, or at least it lends itself to that design. It's long and narrow. It's 18 inches, oh god, wide as I mentioned, but I think 20 or 28 inches long. And so it's one of those. It's not exactly like a tank shape, but it's sort of like that, where it's rectangular, but the sides are very round. And the watches that we saw these go into initially out of the Penso watch factory, as it later became known, which is technically, I think, oh, I'm probably wrong. It's probably the third, it's probably the third watch factory. Um, Zvesta, Zona, I should... I should learn Russian. Zvesta is star. It just means star, I'm pretty sure. Z-V... Oh, God. Z-V-E-D-S-A? Zvedsa? If anyone... If anyone can... I, I, I know some other Soviet watchbook listen. If I'm saying that name wrong, please... Please let me know. It's either Zvesta or Zar... Zarla. Zarla. <sighs> I'm totally from Florida. I have no conception of how to say these words. <laughs> Oh man, that's too good. The Zvestas uh, are what we saw the Lip T18 slash Russia Russian uh, or Pensa technically 18002 come out of. It's a really cool movement. Very Art Deco-y. I'll have some pictures in the show notes. It's a sub seconds. Has these very beautiful uh, uh, shaped hands. Uh, a lot of folks would probably classify this as a ladies' watch. I think, in fact, in the 40s, they started calling this, like, a ladies' watch. I could see a dude wearing this. And, I, okay, here's the funny thing also. The Lip T18 movement is probably not super well-known, except for the fact that, apparently, and if you go to the Lip website, because the cause Lip, uh, French watch manufacturer, Lip is still around, they will make sure you fucking know this. The only very famous wearer, or at least potential owner, of one of these Lip um, T18 watches was Winston Churchill. Apparently he was gifted one, and, uh, you know, I don't fucking know if he wore it. It's like the Vulcan Cricket. One president wore it, and then after, one U.S. president wore it, and then after that, they kept, you know, Vulcan just kept giving them to presidents, and now Vulcan can say, oh, we're the president's watch, but it's like, no, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure you're not, but whatever, dude. Um, but that's the T18, the lip, the lip T18's claim to fame is that, you know, apparently Winston Churchill got one. Um, I don't know if he wore it, but, you know, he got it. And so, just a bit of history on the T18 um, before it ended up in the, you know, in the Pensa 1802. But check out the links in the show notes. It's a cool-looking watch. You can find these on eBay, um, and they're not honestly that expensive, uh, which is really cool. And this is a really fun thing that you'll pick up when you get more into Soviet urology. Um, 
the Soviets cared <laughs> less and less about decoration uh, as the years went on. So you know you have an early uh, Zvesta 1802 um, if it has really fun decoration on there. Cut to, cut to Geneva, your, your fucking Geneva stripes, if the mainspring barrel has the Russian stars on it. Um, that's how you'll know you'll A, have an older one, and B, if you're lucky enough to find a really old one, a really old uh, Zvesta 1802, you might even be able to find some indications that it has lip parts in it. So part of the deal that the Soviets made with lip was for, like I said, technology, patents, uh, what's the, what's the, tra training, fucking training, sorry. Um, but the other part of that was also materials. So very, very early um, Zvesta uh, 1802s uh, out of Pensa have indications that they have lip movements, you know, so movements. So basically everything like the case and the probably maybe the case and the dial was made in Russia, but the movement or at least some parts of the movement are were made in in France. I think some of the early models are I think they're all gold plated. The the movements. I can't speak for the cases, but that's an interesting thing. So if you go here, let's just do it together. Let's go to eBay. Ba -ba -ba -ba. Z-V-E-D-S-A. That's not how you spell Zvesta. Zve oh, there's two Zs. Look at that. Zvesta 1802. Let's see where this gets us. Sorry, 1802 here. Blah, blah, blah. Ugh, that's not helpful. Let's just try Zvesta Star. This is good. Uh, this is good airtime. So this is Star Watch. Oh, I'm totally typing it wrong. Let's see here. Ba -ba -ba -ba. Maybe it's the Zarla Star, and I'm just getting confused. Yeah, there we go. I was just typing it in wrong. Z-V-E-Z, -E there it is, <laughs> D-A, Jesus Christ, man, uh, that's funny, let me just make sure this is the right one, yeah, you can find these on eBay, it's, it's, it's pretty cool, I'm just clicking through this image right now, you guys can hear me clicking on my fucking mouse, oh, this one's fun, it actually has the Geneva stripes, so as you're going through also, I always say this, you know, be careful when you're looking uh, for, for watches, Soviet watches, you don't want to find anything Franken or anything like that, you want to make sure it has the right factory stamp, and you want to make sure that in the case of, and so in the case of this uh, vest I'm looking at right now, it's got the Geneva stripes on it, and I'm looking at this one. It has two large uh, bridge plates in the front or back, technically, quote unquote. Um, and the stripes don't match up. So the stripes on one plate are one kind of way, and the stripes on the other plate, you know, are a different kind of way. So that to me would indicate most likely that it's, uh, you know, it's a Franken. And you just have to kind of make the personal choice as to how, how much Franken you care about or don't care about, you know? All right, so some quick stats on this watch. Sorry, one second. 
Huh. Oh, that's fine. Quick stats here on the Zvesta 1802. Or, um, yeah, like I said before, people call it other stuff, but it's basically the Lip T18. Um, let me see here. We talked about that. 18 millimeters wide, 28 millimeters long, 15 joules, uh, 34 hour power reserve, you know, plus minus 45 seconds a day. All this good. All good stuff. Go to eBay, check it out. No one seems to be listing these with Zvesta um, 1802 like 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 I'm saying it here because I don't think like I said before the movements didn't really have names back then. But if you uh, go to eBay and just type in Zvesta watch, you'll see a bunch of stuff. You'll see uh, a, a lot of the Zvesta stars um, from the Penza watch factory, Penza watch factory that I was talking about. So pretty cool. Uh, let me see here. With the lip deal came one of the other really huge, huge things for Soviet watches. So I mentioned before, you know, I think lip had a larger impact. The French watch manufacturer lip had a larger impact on Soviet horology than Duberhampton did, specifically because lip was one of the few European watch brands that was starting to dabble and experiment with, um, Basically, a, an, an assembly line watch manufacturing process, like a like a survey, like a like a what's the way of saying it here? Um, like a conveyor line, like a conveyor line assembly, you know, of watches. Where before it was very, you know, craftsmen at a workbench, one watch at a time, very meticulous, so on and so forth. But with the growth of industrialization across Europe, you know, it's pretty logical to want to then dabble, you know, with that in regards to urology as well. But the general European watch industry was not very early in adopting it, basically because I think the thought process was, as a precision instrument, you can't get the precision you need from it if it's, you know, um, mass, mass manufactured and everything like that. But French Lip had some of the early stages of working on that and that was also technology that the soviets were able to acquire in their deal with lip so in pensa what they started to do was create more machinery based on the machinery they got from lip to then disseminate out to other watch factory uh, watch factories um I'm trying to think of examples of some of the watch factories that got some of the stuff. Uh, 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 Minx, 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 can't ever say that. Um, the Minx watch factory is one. There's a couple other ones as well. But that process of creating their own tools based off the information they got from the lip tools and then disseminating that information out is what really helped the growth of the next watch kind of movement slash brand I want to talk about. And that's Pabetta Watches due in large part to the LIP R26 movement. Now, if you're still with me here, French, uh, the Soviet watches, Soviet watches are interesting in that, remember in the beginning of the episode when I talked about um, Marxism and the government and factories and all that stuff like that? Soviet urology is unique. Well, I shouldn't say unique. I'll, I'll, I'll say nuanced. Soviet urology is nuanced in the fact that all watch factories were owned by the government. All factories were owned by the government because in communism it's the government's job to make sure the people have everything they need 
Again, to clarify, communism doesn't work. Please send me, please don't send me angry emails, blah, 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 blah. But that was the basic idea, is that the government provides you with everything, therefore the government should be in charge of creating everything. And that went for watches as well. So the government owned all the watch factories. So that makes the interesting thing, the, the concept of a brand as... Um, as kind of antithetical to the idea of Soviet watches. A brand is a very... Um, a brand is a very capitalist sort of designation. Like, oh, you know, it's a brand. Privately owned, it's a brand. Oh, it's this brand name. You know, Coca-Cola, brand name, brand name. Blah, 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 so on and so forth. Um, and the reason I point that out is because you can have watches with dial designations so uh, so in the case of pabetta um or even zvesta technically zvesta yeah you can have those watches made in multiple watch factories so you and it creates this really interesting thing in soviet watch collecting in that you start to notice different factory variations that's why before i was saying as you're looking at you looking through ebay look for the factory stamps i'll include a link to um one of the collector sites that I love that I use for references for, for um, logo uh, Russian or Soviet logo watch factory stamps, everything like that. But always check the factory stamps to ensure because just because it says Vesta on the dial, don't assume it was made in Pensa or the Pensa watch factory. Could have been made in fucking Raketa. Pretty sure they made Vestas in over, well, it wasn't Raketa at the time, it was Petrovorets um, in the 40s after the Soviets had to rebuild it when it was destroyed. So that makes the whole idea of the brand really weird and in no watch i'll call it a dial designation i won't say brand and no watch dial and soviet dial designation is that more true than pabetta you know pabetta watches pabetta watches were really cool in that up until this point so post-ish you know world war ii um watches really were still being made primarily for military applications, precision instruments, and everything like that. There wasn't really a watch dial designation that had kind of cracked the nut into becoming a watch for everyone, which, if you think about it, is a pretty important thing in the idea of communism. You will have everything you need. The government will, you know, the government will provide. And so with Pabetta watches, we actually saw that occur. Pabetta watches was able to exist... Um, I think, oh God, I think actually this is one of the few watch brands that people can actually trace back to, um, let me double check here. I think this is one of the few watch brands that people can trace back to Stalin. Actually, yeah, cool. So in 1945-ish, kind of after World War II-ish, um, you like my, you like my ish date designations? <laughs> I'm doing this on the fly, guys. Um, Stalin ordered the creation of Pabetta watches to commemorate uh, the end of World War II because I'm pretty sure Pabetta means victory. Yeah, Pabetta, Pabetta means victory. So victory in, in you know, relation to, I guess, World War II and, uh, um, and all that stuff. One second... Yeah, perfect. That makes total sense. 
in relation to World War II, and then it wasn't until 1946 when the first Pavetta watches rolled out. The only way this was able to occur is because of the... of Remember before when I said Pencil Watch Factory was making technology and sending it out to other factories so they could then also make lip-based uh, movements? This was only able to occur because of that deal. Those uh, That machinery went... Ended up everywhere. So obviously it's in, it was in Penza. Ended up in the first Moscow watch factory, Petroverets, which is technically, um, which becomes Riketa. Kisipol watch factory, which is uh, Vostok. Second Moscow watch factory, which is Slava. And a few other ones, which I can't remember right now. But basically it's the, it's because of that, that Pabeto was able to be so widely dispersed. And specifically, Pabetta was built on this R26 uh, movement, this lip R26 movement, which which became known, I think, technically under Pabetta as the K26, K26, K26. So 26 refers to the width of the movement, 26 diameters. So quickly, just going over everything here, uh, French lip watch manufacturer. The deal occurred in 1936. From that deal, they acquired the technological rights to do the T-18, a.k.a. the Russian 1802, made in the Ziff Bike Factory, which then, I didn't, I didn't clarify this, the Bike Factory and the Watch Factory split in 1940, and then, you know, Pensa became technically, I believe, the third Watch Factory. Um, started going into the, the, the T-18 slash 1802, started going into these Vesta stars. You can go on eBay and check them out. They're really, really pretty. Um, there's a bunch of different ones, you know, uh, but just do, do your research, do some reading and everything like that before you actually you know, take the plunge. Um, and then the other watch movement that we got from there was the R26, which uh, was help, which helped create Pabetta watches. And these two things together helped to widely disseminate this assembly line production of watches. So it has been, let's see, let's let's do... 1917 minus 1947. It has been 30 years since the Red Revolution. 30 years from having no industrialized presence at all. Not even just in Europe. On Earth. Nothing. They couldn't farm. I mean, they could farm, but not enough. Um, they went from that to having assembly line watches and making a shit ton of watches. The Soviets made a lot of watches. I think in relation to, like, I don't have specific numbers in front of me, but in relation to, like, percentages versus other European countries, they made a lot more watches. Because remember what I said before, every person will have what they need. Every Soviet citizen will have, you know, some kind of option to get a watch. And Pabetta is what really, really helped that. Pabetta kind of became the people's watch. Uh, which is why it was named Victory. It was a victory for the Soviets, blah, 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 and all that stuff. This also... Goddamn bug. This also began one of the inter interesting kind of traditions within Soviet urology, which I think I'm sure is congruent around other pieces of um, Soviet industrialization and tech and things like that. But n naming, naming watches after military victories or soon to be coming up, you know, space race victories, commemorative things, you know, all that stuff. Vostok is named Vostok because of the Vostok 1 that Yuri Gagarin went up in. Raketa is named Raketa because Raketa means rocket. This is at the time when, you know, rocket propulsion technology was really being advanced and everything like that. So, um, you know, the, the, the idea of Pabetta 
literally meaning victory and that being the people's watch for me this kind of um if it didn't start the tradition it really normalized it in soviet urology Whew. so the r26 the lip r26 which then turned into the k uh, 2.6 in Pabetta. It's a pretty straightforward movement. It's fairly reliable. It's in a very similar class as the uh, T18 slash 1802. Uh, mechanical lever, 26 millimeters wide, 15 joules, 30 hour power reserve. Um, and this movement did its thing for, for a long time. But the focus I want to shift from the K26, I want to start focusing on Raketa now to really bring it back again to my wrist check to talk about the movement that's in my uh, Raketa Big Zero, the Raketa 2609. I'm trying to create this uh, kind of bloodline thread from this lip French watch manufacturer lip deal to what's on my wrist now. Um, and this is, this is the pivot point. So in approximately 1947, um, the Soviets really started to get more aggressively into the conveyor line assembly. So, you know, the, the, the same technology that Ford used to create cars and to standardize that process of assembly, not necessarily manufacturing and fabrication, but, you know, baby steps, assembly, you know, was being used um, in 1947 by the Soviets, uh, due in part from some of the technology and learnings they got from, fra from the French watch manufacturer LIP. 1947, that started becoming normal. Three years before that, Raketa was destroyed um, in the war. Petersburg was, uh, I think, heavily sieged and then bombed by the, by the Nazis. And the factory was destroyed. Um, but it wasn't Raketa back then. It wasn't even a really, it wasn't really a watch factory back then. Uh, Raketa has a very interesting history, and it has the very honored designation <laughs> of, of being the oldest factory in Russia, started in the 1700s by Peter the Great, specifically to process, hone, and f like carve out uh, gem uh, gems, uh, but like for trinkets and shit, um, like big, like. Um, if you've ever, I've never been to Russia, but if you ever go to Russia and you go to these old palaces, they have a whole bunch of like large jade vases and all this crazy stuff made from gemstones and precious gems. That's the kind of stuff that the um, Petrovorets factory, I don't know what it was called before that, but, but the Petrovorets factory was making uh, in the 1700s. And so it has a very long lineage of working with gemstones. After the, um, and that continued basically for a long time. <laughs> they were doing that for a long time until the Red Revolution, 1917. After that, the Soviets said, hey, we have this factory. They've been working with gemstones since the 1700s, all this factory in Russia. We have a need to make precision instruments. Let's have factory in St. Petersburg. Let's have them make um, jewel bearings. That's it, because jewels... So anytime someone talks about a movement, they're like, oh, it's 15 joules. Oh, it's 17 joules. It's 24, 30, 32 joules, blah, blah, blah. The joules is in reference to um, an old practice of actually using joules to uh, lubricate any metal-to-metal -metal contact. Because anytime you have moving parts, you don't want, like, like 
constant metal to metal contact, especially if something's like rotating, because then it creates friction, friction, and you lose precision, and you start losing quality, and it degrades the material, blah, 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 so on and so forth. So what they used to do is they actually asked to, they actually used to use jewels um, in some of those areas. Uh, now we use synthetic jewels uh, with a combination of like different lubricants and stuff like that. I think they used lubricants back then too, but basically, you know, before these synthetic jewels were able to be made, they actually used real jewels. And that's what the um, St. Petersburg Petrovorets factory was designated to do, uh, you know, during the, during the Soviet Union before the factory was destroyed in 1944. During World War II, I'm pretty sure they made like munitions in addition to still doing the jewels thing. But then, like I said before, um, Petersburg was sieged, it was bombed, you know, it was, it was gone, it was gone, it was destroyed, it was gone, you know. Uh, and it was gone for a long time until they rebuilt the factory in 1949. But when they rebuilt the Petrovorich factory, the factory that was making jewels for precision instruments, and the factory that before that was housing craftsmen who made jewel decorations and trinkets and shit like that when that factory was rebuilt in 1949 again this is around the time when all that lip technology is making its way around the soviet union the conveyor line assembly process is being disseminated uh, the choice is made to uh, rebuild raketa but to make watches uh, to make watches with this lip um, technology and they did that they made vestas and this I had to write down. I always forget. They made Zvezda's and... Oh, of course. I'm an idiot. Pabetta. <laughs> I was talking about it fucking five minutes ago. Whew, a lot of information. Um, if anyone's still with me, a lot of information. So yeah, rebuilt 1949. They started making Zvezda and Pabetta watches. Awesome. Super, super cool. What I mentioned before, the interesting quirk about a watch brand, not really being a watch brand in the Soviet Union, in no way did uh, in no way did that have a more interesting result than with Raketa. Like I said before, you got sometimes weird variances between certain factories. So a Zvezda from Pensa might not look the same as a Vesta from from Kirov slash Polyot slash First Scott Moscow Watch Factory, which might not look the same as one from you know, kiss to pole or something like that. But for some reason, uh, which is, uh, which I'm honestly still not really too sure about. It's, it's one of the interesting things that would, I would love to just learn more about. For some reason in Raketa, Petrovorets, let's not call it Raketa yet. It's the Petrovorets factory in the fifties, it got the name Petrovorets factory, uh, watch factory. They started to iterate on the lip technology, but sort of with their own flair. So 1949, it was rebuilt, and they particularly really started to claim ownership, not ownership, but they really started to lean into the R26 from the Pabetta, or the, 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 the Lip R26 slash Soviet K26 from the Pabetta. And in the 50s, that movement basically came to be known, um, at least by us. This I'm not sure about if they used to uh, refer to it internally, but it's one of those things that we can trace to Raketa just by looking at the fucking movement. Um, in the 50s-ish, the Raketa 2602 started to kind of take shape and become its own thing 
distinct from the other ways uh, Soviet watch factories were iterating on the uh, Pobeda K26 movement. It was also in this time that, um, oh yeah, the 50s, oh yeah, in, in, the, in, in the 50s, it became the, the Petrovoretz um, watch factory. And then in the 60s, with the advent of the, the, the space race and Yuri Gagarin and all that stuff started happening, that's when the Soviets changed the name of the Petrovoretz watch factory to uh, Raketa, so rocket Raketa and everything like that. And it's also around this time we start seeing early, early versions. This is like the, I would say late 60s, 70s-ish-ish. Um, we started seeing the Raketa 2609. I'll pause here to emphasize the Raketa 2609 in its early stages um, was probably the most... Oh, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase it without sounding like a dick. <laughs> it's probably the most influential thing that had occurred, in my opinion, in Soviet technology, specifically because they iterated and they built on the Raketa 2.6 uh, caliber line so much after the 2.609 came out that it's just nuts. Uh, they iterated the perpetual calendar uh, functionality, the 24-hour Arctic dial functionality. Um, in addition to that, that movement was also used for the uh, Raketa like blind watch, the 2609, the, bl uh, the, the, the hard of seeing watch where you can lift the crystal off and you can feel the dial and feel the hands and it won't like throw the watch off the time. You can tell what time it is. They iterated on that thing so much for me, if someone were to say, hey, what's, you know, like, what's the coolest movement in, in Soviet technology? Most folks would probably say, like, the Strela 3017 or, like, the Polyot 3133. I'm going to say the Rakata 2609 because it's fairly straightforward. It's elegant. It's a three-hander. It's manual line. It doesn't fuck around. It's just, for me, very significant. And that's the movement that I actually have in my... Raketa Big Zero. The main differences in the um, R2, the main differences in the uh, Raketa 2602, which was based off the K26, uh, the main difference between that movement and my Raketa 2609 movement is basically the, pla uh, the placement of the second hands. There's some other changes, but that's the main thing people focus on. The Raketa 2602 had a sub seconds at um, six o'clock, which was one of the last holdovers that the 2602 had on the Pobeda K26. But with the advent of the Raketa 2609, um, the second hands became centralized, you know, not sub-seconds, so just three hands in the center, boom, doing its thing. Okay. In 1977, Raketa, in my opinion, achieved the ultimate goal of what the initial 1917 October Revolution uh, was really about. Self-reliance, full industrialization, you know, something purely Soviet, something purely like, like we want you to look at this and say that's something, you know, that was made by the Soviets. Um, 
1977, I shouldn't say, exact dates are tough (laughs) with Soviet urology. In approximately 1977, Raketa became uh, totally automated. And by totally automated, I mean totally automated. Uh, Machines were basically making the watch with very minimal... um, you know, human uh, intervention. So let's just talk about the timeline here. 1917, nothing. We have nothing. It's nothing, you know. Um, every time I say that, I just, I do the Kylo Ren quote in my head. You're nothing. You came from nothing. But not to me. Sorry. Um, <laughs> there's nothing. 1917, there's nothing. Um, 1926, hey, we need to do our, 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 our watch supplies from the Swiss are running out. We have to do something. Okay. 1930, uh, made a deal with Duber Hamden um, in Canton, Ohio. Cool, that tech is outdated. 1935, made a new deal with French. The good tech is here, and they're giving us some initial know-how on how to do, you know, assembly line manufacturing. 1944, assembly line manufacturing is fairly widespread thanks to lip technology. And then 1977, Raketa fully automates. So we're not talking about assembly line fully automates which then allows them to do what i think no other soviet watch brand did as uniquely um you could argue vostok kind of did this but no other soviet watch brand did this as uniquely as raketa they began to get creative which is a weird concept um i suppose (laughs) in soviet product manufacturing um usually what's informed soviet creativity was like i mentioned before uh commemorations of military stuff i don't know military victories or losses you know the the loss of life or space race uh you know stuff yuri gagarin he went up on space on that that fucking washing machine they call the vostok one if you've never seen what the vostok one looked like i wouldn't i would never have gotten into that like wait a minute you want me to get into this washing machine and you're going to bottle rocket me out into space? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> never never get to that fucking thing. Um, or, so, so, so I was talking about what informs Soviet creativity. Commemorations or functionality. Honestly, sometimes functionality was, you know, a main driver in what something looked like. But for the first time with Raketa, the functionality... And the actual manufacturing process is simplified so to the point that we actually have some time to get creative with what our dials look like. We have the capabilities to be a little bit playful with what we want to put on the dial. Excellent examples of this include the Raketa School. If you go to eBay and type in Raketa School, ooh, actually, you know what? Type in School Watch, Raketa School Watch. Don't type in Raketa School because that's just Rocket School and that might... That might, uh, some people, you know, probably don't want that in their search history. So <laughs> search history. So let's type in Raketa School, Raketa School watch. So cool. These are a series of watches that came out where the dial looks like a, a piece of lined paper. <laughs> uh, there's a blue version and a pink version. And the idea that, um, uh, that we believe now as Soviet collectors is that these were made for, for children, for school children. So Raketa School the blue ones are for boys. The pink ones are for girls. Um, you know, 
you can do whatever fucking color. Who gives a shit? Uh, but the dial, it looks like someone drew the dial on a piece of, like, lined notebook paper. That is, that is, that is so cool. That just, you have to understand how unusual that is within Soviet design. That's playfulness. The watch doesn't have to look like this. There's no, that doesn't inform the function at all. This is very playful. Um, in addition to that, there's the Raketa Copernicus, or Raketa Copernic, uh, to commemorate uh, Copernicus. So, you know, on the dial, uh, there's the regular second hands, but the hour hand and the uh, minute hand are, I guess, technically the sun and moon? <laughs> but basically, they look like little planets, and then as the hands pass over each other, it creates, like, an eclipse. Purely, that's a purely a playful design function. Um, it, uh, another incredible example of uh, the playfulness is there's no name for it, but there's um, there's a Raketa dial out there where the Raketa logo has these weird lines drawn on it, and the lines are are going down to one point on the dial, and you then realize that the Raketa logo is a kite. So the lines that are going down to the one point where the little kite holdy thingy is. Uh, the Raketa logo is a kite, and it just basically looks like it's flapping in the wind. Again, purely playful, very un-Soviet. This is also occurring, you know, in the 70s and 80s, the Soviets were becoming more adoptive to what I would call non-Soviet things. You saw more Western sort of influences. English, English started being used more in the Soviet Union, especially on watches around this time and everything like that, so... So it's all honestly really, really cool, and it's all building up to this point in the 70s, approximately, of just total watch uh, automation. I will classify my Big Zero as another playful design. It's it's purely a design thing with this with the dial. You know, it could have just been a watch with like a, a like a beige dial and gold hands, which for a long time is what a lot of Soviet watches, uh, you know, looked like, as per the, you know, some of the styles and stuff like that going around. So. That, for me, kind of rounds it out appropriately, in my opinion, to the point where my Raketa Big Zero was built in about the 80s. So we went from nothing in 1917 to full watch automation and a drive for creativity in about the 70s slash 80s, and bam, that's where my Big Zero falls in. That's the lineage of not just the movement in my watch, but also the impetus, I think, behind you know, the dial design. Um, there's a really dumb story about the actual dial design story. So a lot of people call the... I, I'm sighing because I hate this story. A lot of people call the Raketa Big Zero um, Mikhail, the Mikhail Gorbachev's watch, the Gorbachev watch, uh, because he was doing an interview in Italy and he was wearing... Supposedly, I've seen, I've never seen a proper source for this story. I've only seen like watch forum conjecture and Raketa, I think has it on their site now, but I'll, I'll talk about modern Raketa in a moment, but there's no proper uh, third party primary sort of ish source. Like 
watch brand can say whatever the fuck they want. You know, like like Lip before saying, "Oh, Winston Churchill wore his T eighteen every day." No, he died. I mean, maybe he did, but who fucking knows? I don't know. If someone knows, do let me know. But the story that Mikhail Gorbachev gave um, in regards to the Big Zero, he was in Italy. He was giving an interview, and the interview. Uh, it's every watch nerd's dream come true. Someone who you met notices your watch. First of all, that's how I immediately know the story is not true. No one ever notices our watches. All right. Um, but they're doing an interview and the interviewer goes, uh, you know, oh, that's a very interesting watch you're wearing. It's very unusual. Uh, I've never seen a dial with the, with the big zero on it. It has the big zero. Instead of 12 o'clock, it has the huge, huge zero. And Mikhail Gorbachev goes, uh, goes uh, uh oh you know this watch has a big zero on it because when the russian people start over they start from zero um in reference to you know the 1917 revolution also in reference to the idea of time being cyclical you know the watch goes all the way around and it restarts we don't restart from 12 we restart from zero i think it's a, it's a charming story but it's kind of stupid the reality is this watch probably is the way it is for people who are hard of seeing and again purely design i think someone just wanted to have fun with it they didn't want to put a giant 12 on there they thought it probably looks too busy with the bold font and the um the space that the number 12 was taking up that they just said hey let's just put a fucking zero on there and that's you know that's what it is Whew. so that's it i hope I appropriately represented uh, the influence that the French watch manufacturer Lip had on Soviet watches in relation to how that deal helped, I think, the dream, at least within neurology, of the Soviet goal of self-reliance and everything like that come true. Didn't really help them out <clears throat> too much or anything like that, but it did help Raketa be one of the largest watch manufacturers in the Soviet Union. They made so many watches because of this um, you know, assembly line, uh, fully automated watch uh, capabilities. So, oh yeah, in regards to Modern Raketa, I made a comment about Modern Raketa before. Um, the brand was purchased uh, by an independent business person, I think a Frenchman, oh, in the 2000s, I think, late 2000s, late 2000s, uh, we're still in the 2000s, guys. Uh, the late, I don't know, I don't fucking know when the hell did the when the hell did Jean or Jean or Jean buy Raketa? One second, let me see this here. Raketa. Ba 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 ba. Ba 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 ba. Ba 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 ba. Ba 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 ba. Who fucking cares? Whatever. Recently, listen. All that matters is that it's post Soviet Union. After the fall of the Soviet Union, these watch, so many watch brands just went away, or they were gobbled up or purchased. Or, weirdly enough, in the case of Vostok, the workers got the rights to the uh, watch factory. Which is another funny story. Poor Vostok has the weirdest fucking history. I think I already did an episode on, on the entire history of the Vostok watch factory slash Kissable watch factory. Go back and listen. It's hilarious. Um, but in the case of Raketa, it was purchased uh, by an independent business person. Um, and they're doing their best to drive home the history of the watch brand which is totally appropriate the watch brand has great history but they're trying to make it really seem like they're trying to compete with like rolex basically they want raketa to be you know russia's luxury watch like this is our luxury status uh symbol 
that's running into a lot of issues in regards to the fact that Russians, modern Russians, view any sort of status symbol generally as something non-Russian. Italian suit in Russia, status symbol. Uh, Italian car, German car, Russia, status symbol. Um, so the idea of something being Russian luxury and a status symbol is... Um, it doesn't really fit into, and it's not appropriate for me to generalize an entire population's ethos, but whatever, it's my fucking show, so I can do whatever I want. It's not generally in the population's, you know, ethos. I think it's in, I think it's in relation to the fact of how aggressively the Soviets gobbled up Western culture after the fall of the, um, of the Soviet Union, and then even closer to the fall, before the fall of the Soviet Union, like, non, because a generation of people grew up hearing about McDonald's and KFC and Disney World and all these like Western brands and these things were very luxurious and very foreign and then after the fall all of a sudden all these companies burst into the Soviet Union because from all these companies and brands point of view this is a population of people who are untapped they have money Let's do it. And I think because of that, we're still feeling the effects in that non-Russian things are associated with, you know, luxury. Um, even culinary. Like, we, my, my wife and I were watching a show recently about, like, Russian cuisine. Like, the Russians don't value... I shouldn't generalize. I apologize again. But stereotypically, the idea of Russian cuisine is not like a nice going out thing like you go out for a a, a, a a you know a fine dining it's italian or it's french or something like that so um Raketa's goal of trying to be you know the luxury watch it's not just them trying to be the luxury watch in russia it's them technically competing with all these other european brands which are already ingrained as luxury pieces you know for the for the russians so who knows if they'll actually do it or not, but they're doing everything they can, the, uh, Raketa, they're doing everything they can to, you know, be that brand. Um, I would maybe argue, no, not technically. Like I said, I don't really know anything about Russian watches, but the other uh, high, hot horology watchmaker in, in Russia, I think he's in Moscow, is Konstantin Chaikin, the Konstantin Chaikin book. Very small watch house. They do very expensive, very high concept pieces. Not like high concept abstract pieces. Like high concept in that um, a watch with three hands just isn't going to cut it. <laughs> they do the Joker watch. They have like the... I don't know what it was called. It was like the Sands of Time watch. And it was like a wizard with like an hourglass. And he's turning it over and all this shit like that. So... Um, but they're more like the Russian, I don't know, MBNF, you know, if anything. So I don't think a Russian watch luxury brand exists. If you put a gun to my head and said which one has the closest chance of doing it, uh, probably Raketa. But that's not to say it's a good chance. Um, Vostok is still around in Russia now, but they, um, they're still very heavily associated with, like, the military and things like that, and so, 
Um, the idea of trying to break into the luxury uh, market doesn't make any sense. Um, Constantine Chaikin, those pieces are always going to be too expensive. And like I said, they're just too high concept. Raketa just makes kind of you know, the, the most sense, but I don't think they're going to do it. Um, but yeah, so that's that's for a whole that's for a whole other episode. Here, let's do this. I have talked to you kind people at home. <laughs> I've had so many watches for too long. I really hope everyone enjoyed the show. I hope people learned uh, just interesting facts. I hope I helped people see how really just cool Soviet watches are and how the idea, and this is intrinsic to all watch collecting. I, and Michael and I, I think we did a Q&A episode uh, last week where um, I think I made the point that watch collecting, it's not, it's not just watch collecting like if you speak to someone and and they're just like oh yeah i collect watches because i like i like watches that have a blue dial there's nothing wrong with that i just wouldn't jive with that person as a watch collector because true watch collectors collect pieces that hit on something very intrinsic to who they are as a person i collect watches particularly soviet watches for the same reasons i used to collect uh comic books i love the idea of a shared story of a shared mythos of a history of uh uh, uh you know a product's history but then the product the, the history of those behind the creation of the product it's all stories it's a love it's a love of stories really i'm not collecting watches i'm collecting totems and touch points to these like fascinating pieces of history so if i meet a watch collector and they tell me oh yeah all the watches i collect you know um it's all like gold stuff or it's just blingy stuff i would classify them as like a wealth enthusiast not necessarily a watch collector i don't think there's anything wrong with being a wealth enthusiast if you got wealth fucking flaunt it who cares um but it would be very difficult for me and that person to have like a conversation about the, that person would have turned the show off an hour and 20 minutes ago <laughs> you know so um i hope i helped increase people's appreciation or understanding of just why some people me particularly are attracted to Soviet watches it's not just the watch man it's the story 75 years and 75 years so much uh occurred rose uh hit its peak declined and fell you know um oh technically i was just speaking of just popping in the head modern watch brands that can modern russian brands that can trace their lineage to soviet watch brands polyot is still around uh polyot is the first moscow watch factory it's polyot and or poljot (laughs) p-o-l-j-o-t uh stermansky um, they're still around, but I wouldn't buy uh, any modern ones. I shouldn't say that. I, if you have an affinity or a desire to own a Polyot or a Stamansky or even a Strela or even a Kirov, you know, even though there are no Kirovskis around anymore, not modern ones or Strelas, um, unless they're reproductions. If you wanted to own one with a strong attachment to Soviet. This look like a Soviet story, Soviet lineage. I wouldn't buy any any of the modern ones. After the fall of the USSR, Polyot was gobbled up by a conglomerate of German and Russian business people. All the manufacturing was moved partly to partly to Germany, partly to uh, 
somewhere in Switzerland as well. Recently, they tried moving it back to Russia. I think maybe even in the original location of the first Moscow Watch Factory. It's uh, modern Polyat's not really for me. I'd be more inclined to experiment with modern Raketa just because it has stayed in Raketa, even though it's a different owner now and it's privately owned and they're doing their own thing and all this thing, blah, blah, blah. Same machines, um, you know, same location, all this stuff. Much smaller, much smaller staff. Now, the staff during the heyday of uh, Raketa was huge, so. <sighs> yeah, let's do this. Um, I will start to wrap this show up. Hope everyone enjoyed my solo episode. If you have any questions about any information that I shared on here, or if you also know about Russian watches and I got some of my dates mixed up, which is entirely fucking possible, you can please let me know what's up. It's all good. Go to eBay, check out the Zvezda Stars. Good luck trying to spell that. I'll write it in the show notes somewhere. <laughs> you can also actually, if you if you want to have some fun, go and check out Pabetta. Um, should be K2s. Let me double check here. Go to eBay, Pobeda K26. Oh my god, it's so annoying. Like I said before, early Pobetas, the movements just didn't have names. Um, let me see technically what the name of this could be. Pobeda. Eh, it doesn't matter. If you just go and type in Pavetta, anything with a small second hand is going to be based off the Lip R26 uh, movement. Bam, there it is. Pavetta 2602. Oh, I even mentioned that in the show. So let's do that. Let's do eBay Pavetta 2602. Yeah, these look about right. Let me see the movement, the actual movement shots. Ba ba ba. I'll have the links for what I mentioned before, like the you know watch stamps that are integral to use and I'll have links for a lot of the other information that I mentioned here and everything like that but you know that's it that's the show I hope everyone had a good time go to eBay check out the Sylvester Stars check out the Pobeda 2602 check out the Raketa 2602 check out the Raketa 2609 go and look at all the stuff absorb as much information as you can um, Soviet watches are an incredible place to collect vintage watches because really you shouldn't you shouldn't really spend more than like a hundred bucks on a piece. Honestly, you can stay within 20 or 30 and collect some really fun stuff. I would only ever go over a hundred bucks for something special. I went over a hundred bucks for my Slava Medical, which took me years to find, probably three or four years to find. Um, I went over a hundred bucks for my Polyot 3133 because it's a chronograph. So if you chronographs, the, my rule doesn't apply. And it took me a year to find one, um, you know, that wasn't too frank and, and like in inappropriate conditions. So I encourage everyone to go to eBay, check it out, go to Etsy, you know, check out these things. If you have any questions, let me know what's up. Uh, episode 199 is next. And then after that, episode 200, it's going to be a special one. It's a crazy milestone. But here, let's do this. It's that sad time. I hope everyone enjoyed the show. Uh, if you have any questions on, you know, lip or Soviet watches or any of that stuff, you know, let us know what's up. If you want to join in on the fun, um, you can jump on our Patreon uh, page, patreon.com slash twobokewatchknobs. You'll get information there on how to join our uh, Slack channel, which is uh, it's honestly a lot of fun. It's basically, it's this like, there's got to be 30 or so of us in there, and it's probably the best watch community I've ever been a part of. Um, go and opt into our hanging watch dong tier and um, I'll, you know, reach out to you and, you know, you'll get access and how to get in and everything like that. But here, let's do this. It's that time. It's that sad time. Hope everyone had a good time. 
Let us know your thoughts on the show. Hit us up at tbs.com. Oh, God. Dot contact at gmail.com. I scratched the last 10 seconds. I fucked that up. tbws.contact at gmail.com. That email again is tbws.contact at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Instagram as well, at TwoBokeWatchNobs. Although, honestly... Oh, you can also, um, if you do contribute to us on Patreon, you can message us on Patreon. That's actually a really great way of reaching us with questions. Um, our email uh, is slammed constantly, um, so the Patreon's a good way of directly reaching us. You can also go to the website and comment on this actual show, blah, 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 everything, all fun, good stuff. Here, I'll do this. I'll let everyone go. Hope everyone had a good time. Hope everyone has a good week, a good and a safe week with everything going on on Earth. And, uh, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, this is Kaz. You've been listening to Two Book Watch Snobs. Later.